Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tower of London, the White Tower, the Donjon, the Great Keep, Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress. Founded in 1066 and begun as we know it in 1078, the history goes back further and extends on for almost a thousand years. What was it for? What happened there? Who lived there against their will? What bloody family were responsible for 60% of executions? Did the Duke of Clarence have a drinking problem? Who was Martin and why was he so grisly? Can you count on your fingers the cost of minting money? How did Wellington keep his feet dry? And finally, the secret of getting in for free. Good morning, afternoon or evening. I'm David Crowther, guest for this episode. My name is James Holdstock and I am a fellow Crowthling. You will find the next 40 minutes filled with Crowtherisms, digressions and maybe... Just maybe a tiny bit of history, as I try to relay some of the passion and love I have for one of, if not, the greatest building in England, the Tower of London. In researching this episode, I went down many dark avenues and borrowed from many amazing people. My search is a little perverse, actually, as I found the History of England podcast while searching for information about the Tower of London and England in the year 1199. Before you try to work out how old I am and your brain starts to dribble out of your ear, I did not begin my search in the year 1199. I merely was researching the year as I had decided to commit a murder. Yes, fellow crowdlings, I had a plan to bring history to young people, and I thought the best way to go about it would be to kill a few people in disgusting, hideous or cunning ways. I wrote a murder mystery for young people set in 1199 at the Tower of London. To Murder a King, A Squire's Tale is available on Amazon. So I'm hoping to inform and give something back, even if it's just a day off for our beloved David. So among my sources, I must quote the inimitable Mr. David Crowther. I will also be drawing on my own book. I've been sent some notes from Liz St. John, author of The Lady in the Tower. I've also scoured The Tower of London Official Illustrated History by Edward Impey and Geoffrey Parnell. Yes, illustrated, so about as useful for the medium of podcast as a chocolate teapot. 
I hope you enjoy, and please, any debate, further questions, or especially corrections, send to David Crowther, P.O. Box, England, the past, or just stick it on Facebook. When the Romans founded Londinium in the first century, they laid out a familiar plot of land, and subsequently, as they liked to do, built a wall around it. The eastern edge of this plot, adjacent to the river, is where we will find Tower Hill, once Billy pulls his finger out and gets conking. What better place to build your castle, almost a thousand years later, than near the administrative and religious centres of the Palace of Westminster and Westminster Abbey, using pre-existing walls for defence and a river for further defence? The river, of course, also an excellent supply line to Normandy. So following the relatively well-known event in 1066 of Halley's Comet, hang on, the other big event, William didn't attack London directly. He clever, cleverly skirted around London, asserting his dominance and also cutting off vital supply lines to the city. He crossed the Thames upstream in Oxfordshire and received the submission of the chief men of London in Hertfordshire, north of London, where he promised to be a gracious liege lord. Ah, that's nice. He sent a few men ahead to prepare a fortress and then popped in at Christmas to be crowned. He sloped off to Essex, though, to build more castles and avoid having to worry about all those pesky builders getting in the way and drinking him out of tea and home. Thus the tower was born. They already had some good defences in place at the site, established by the Romans. I mean, what did the Romans ever do for us? Well, they built a wall. Does that one ever make the list? The other edges of the site were defended by a timber wall or palisade. These early building works were little more than a ditch and fence with some accommodation for William. But in 1078, it is said, work began on the famous White Tower, as we call it today. Now, they needed a real wizard to get this going, so they called in Gandalf. Hmm, perhaps this is uh, actually Gundalf, the new Bishop of Rochester, who was in charge of the Hobbits, uh, Masons. Many Norman masons were employed, and stone was specially imported from Normandy. Labour, however, was of course provided by the English. Stick the cat on, love, your builders are English. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle comments in 1097 that many shires whose labour was due to London were hard-pressed because of the wall that they built around the tower. It took them until 1100 to complete the White Tower, and by this time, as avid crowdlings will know, Henry I was coming to the throne, poor Fatty Bill being long gone. Meanwhile, a wall had been built to replace the timber palisade in 1097, ordered by the wonderfully named William Rufus of Tree Arrow Death fame. You'd think the trees would be grateful to him for not using them as a wall. There were a number of major works on the tower, and of course some minor ones. For instance, Richard the Lionheart extended the castle, Hang on, what am I saying? William Longchamp extended the castle in Richard's absence. Being accorded constable, he joined an illustrious list of powerful men. By this time, we've already missed Geoffrey de Mandeville, the first one appointed by William. Stephen Langton gets in on the action in John's reign. Is there anything that guy didn't do? The rest reads like, as you'd imagine, a list of important rich guys with slightly French names. Ralph of Sandwich was constable twice clearly popular for some reason, I'm guessing picnics. We've got Cromwells, Mortimers, Dispensers, and by God! There was also a by God. 
Who by God? Yes, Hugh by God. In 1826, a chap took on the role that you might know. He lived at Number One London, which just seems entirely cocky in itself. It was Arthur Wellesley, and yes, it does relate to one of the opening questions. This was, how did the Duke of Wellington keep his feet dry? Well, as we all know, and we'll all know from now on, it's because he drained the moat. Hmm, did you see that one coming? Yes, by that time the moat was pretty rank and the garrison kept dying, so they finally drained the moat after years of trying to make it work. Which ends this digression. There were of course many additions, extensions and repairs that are too numerous to mention. The troublesome Thomas Beckett was keeper of the works and carried out repairs to the castle. In 1245, priests spotted the ghost of Thomas Beckett striking the stone. The tower fell down twice before being renamed St Thomas's Tower and standing to this day. I've also used building works and the fact that there were, are and maybe always will be Roman remains underneath the tower as a plot device in my little book. Who doesn't love a secret passage? Henry III, who started his reign under the phenomenal regency of William Marshall, widened the whole area that the tower grounds were spread over, and introduced towers in the walls, which meant that archers could cover more of the wall against attackers. The White Tower, you say? It was recorded that in 1240, Henry III had the walls of the tower whitewashed. That it was noteworthy suggests it was never done before. There you go, folks, the White Tower, not really the White Tower. The last whitewash we know of was in 1639, so the White Tower was painted white for 42% of its current lifespan. Onward we go to the next major building project, which was, of course, Edward I. Steady Eddie. Big Ed. Eddie baby. Okay, too far. I'll probably just call him Malleus Scotorum, which means hang Mel Gibson by the misleading edits. Sorry, that should be Hammer of the Scots. Edward had many towers built around the defensive curtain wall, as was his way. These included the aforementioned St Thomas's Tower and also the Lion's Tower. The Lion's Tower was an entrance and was on an island in the moat. Providing a tricky defence to get past, because apart from the land gap it had, as the name suggests, lions. If you're going to choose guards for your stronghold, lions really are the natural choice. If you got past them, you had to take on the pike, and I literally mean the fish, as Edward had the moat stocked with them, ferried down from Cambridge. I use the term ferried, as I have literally no idea how they would have moved live fish. Answers on a postcard, uh, or better still, on Facebook, and no suggestions that they go there when they get out of school. Half. Also at this time, a controversial and politically daunting gate was put in to create access directly from the river. Indeed, I am talking about the water gate. Hang on, don't I mean Traitor's Gate? Well, yes, it's the same thing. It seems whatever you want to call it, there will be some political connection. Who'd have thunk it? Meanwhile, inside the castle, Edward established the Great Wardrobe. This wasn't just clothes, but more arms and armour. He also established a permanent branch of the Mint. The Mint was, of course, where coins were struck. This part of the Crown's business operated in the Tower from the 1290s up until 1978, when it moved to Wales. That, good people, 
is the sound of Edward turning in his undecorated tomb. Making money was a tiring job. In 1546, William Foxley, who was looking after the production at the time, fell asleep in the mint at the height of pressure and slept for 14 days and 15 nights, but awoke as if he had slept but one. I asked at the beginning, can you count on your fingers the cost of a mint? Well, in 1662 there was a new press, which of course literally pressed an impression onto the metal to make coins. This did indeed cost many men's fingers when they got them trapped. No one could make a point about workplace safety due to lack of fingers. This wasn't the only issue for these poor civil servants. At around this time, William Prynne took over as Keeper of the Records and said there was not space for a fire to warm themselves and that the records were in a deplorable pickle. The lion, the mint and the wardrobe weren't the only functions of the tower. Many know the tower as a prison and place of execution. The first well-known prisoner was Ranulf Flambar, the Bishop of Durham. He helped compile the Doomsday Book, so essentially he would have garnered as much popularity as a tax collector. However, when Rufus died and Henry seized the throne, he needed a scapegoat and Ranulf was a good target. He was wily though, our Ranulf, and had a fiery personality as his name would suggest. He became the first person to escape from the dreaded tower. His friends smuggled him a length of rope in a flagon of wine. So he got the guards drunk and climbed out of the tower. I always said wine was good for you. He fled across the channel and set up shop with Henry's older brother, Robert Curthose. Many people say that he was the fire and passion behind Robert's invasion of England. This invasion ended in a boring treaty, but with a pardon for Ranulf in the terms. Could it be that Ranulf's desire to return to England drove his master's plan of invading England and affecting history? I like to think that history is made by the little people, not necessarily the kings and queens that we hear about most. In 1296, King John Balliol, King of Scotland, was held as prisoner. At the pleasure of Eddie Baby. I'm sorry, I think we agreed to stop that because it's silly. Edward I. Balliol spent three years in the Salt Tower. His doesn't sound like an uncomfortable stay, per se. He was allowed to go hunting and have a staff for whom extra space needed to be found. He had a huntsman, barber, tailor, laundress, two squires, three pages and a pack of hunting dogs. Talking of Scots, William Wallace spent a little time in the tower before his execution in 1305, although I would wager his stay was less comfortable than that of John Balliol's. In 1356, after being defeated in battle, John II of France stayed at the tower, but once again in some comfort. He is known to have tipped the lion keeper 20 shillings. But we don't want to hear about people that were threatened with the comfy chair. We want bruises, pain, guts and torture, don't we? Just say if you don't want to hear it. Okay, I shall continue with something revolting. And what could be more revolting in 1381 than the peasants? What? Yes, he's here too. According to Jean Frossard, in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, the tower was stormed by 400 rebels when a gate was opened to let the king out. They ransacked the king's apartments and arrogantly lay and joked on the king's bed, whilst several asked the king's mother to kiss them. This caused so much upset that there was swooning. Swooning, good people! 
This cannot be let to happen. Although it was slightly worse for the Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon of Sudbury, whose head was struck off and popped on a pole. Richard II, a boy king at the time, was kept pretty safe, which was, of course, not the nature of his reign. He ended up being imprisoned in the tower after surrendering to Henry, shortly to become the sixth. Richard didn't die at the tower, though. No, just shortly after leaving it. But don't worry, it's fine. Henry VI is murdered in the Wakefield Tower in 1471 anyway. It's almost like there is some kind of family feud for the throne going on. I'm not going to delve into the Wars of the Roses. This has been done quite sufficiently by Mr Crowther, thank you very much. If you miss it, then just go back and replay those episodes. A little light relief to bring us out of the murder before we hit the Tudors. Did the Duke of Clarence have a drinking problem? He drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine. Well, it was his favourite at least. I would say that's a pretty big drinking problem. I always did say wine was bad for you. So we are at the Tudors. Or are we? It depends if you think they were involved in one of the greatest mysteries of all time. In 1483, Edward IV died. His heir, Edward V, was 12 years old, and spare, sorry, younger brother, Richard, just 10. It's okay, though, because here is Uncle Rich to look after us. Yay! And we are being lodged in the tower for our protection. Nothing could possibly go wrong. But of course it did, as the boys disappeared and were murdered or freed, or hidden, or rescued. There are many theories, and I believe much said on a certain podcast about this as well. For more info, check back on episodes 187 and 188. The fact is that they disappeared. Given the focus on and importance of these two boys, it's incredible to think that there is not a substantial amount of evidence for one or another theory. I know that in saying this, I am laughing in the face of danger, ha! and throwing ice cubes down the vest of fear, But the point I want to make is that this mystery occurred at the Tower. Even for some of the most focused on and scrutinised people in the realm, the shadow of the Great Tower provides the opportunity for mystery, whether it be escape, hiding, or even murder most foul. Mini digression. What group of people do we associate most with the Tower? Why the Beefeaters, of course. The yeoman warders that have patrolled the walls and halls for centuries. In 1485, it was Henry VII that formed the Yeoman Warders, and they are so-called beef-eaters as they were allowed scraps of meat from the banqueting table. Or at least something to do with beef anyway, and eating it. The warders are all retired from the armed forces of the Commonwealth realms, and must be former warrant officers with at least 22 years' service. Nowadays, they must also hold the Long Service and Good Conduct Medal. Since Victorian times, they have been providing guided tours. And what family contributed more to the history of imprisonment, torture and execution in the Tower than the Tudors? Believe it or not, there were only ten people executed on Tower Green, the piece of land within the Tower walls. Tower Hill, on the other hand, well, there were over a hundred executions, spanning 400 years there. That is perhaps worth a podcast in itself. Uh-oh. Of the ten people executed on Tower Green, seven of them bought it over a 118-year period. Basically the Tudor period. The first one just about misses out. William Hastings, in 1483, 
was executed on the orders of Richard III, accused of treason. That seems to be a pretty popular reason for this bunch of people. There was a bit of a lull until 1536, when no less than the Queen was accused of high treason. Well, folks, I'm not sure where we are in the history of England chronology. I know that at the time of writing, this is spoiler very much alert, but I'm going to have to tell you anyway. Convicted at the Tower by a jury of her peers, including her former betrothed and her own uncle, Anne Boleyn was sentenced to death by beheading, since Henry was kind enough to commute it from burning alive. William Kingston, the constable of the Tower, reported that Anne seemed very happy and ready to be done with life. Hmm. In the spirit of the History of England podcasts, I have found a quote and also got Natalie Dormer to play Anne Boleyn. What's, what's that? No, no, Natalie. She's doing what you say? Game of what now? We must press on, folks. Anne apparently said, Mr Kingston, I hear I shall not die afore noon, and am very sorry, therefore, for I thought to be dead by this time and past my pain. I'm sure you'll agree that was better than Natalie Dormer anyway. Natalie, though, if you're listening, we love you and we need to talk with regards to A Squire's Tale and who you'll be playing. Rather than a common axe, an expert swordsman was flown in, presumably by an African swallow, from France. She was executed, apparently on a scaffold erected on the north side of the tower. In the French style of executions, Anne knelt upright and said her final prayer. The word on the street, or rather the scaffold, is the fact (coughs) that the swordsman was so good that Anne's lips continued to move in prayer after her head had been removed from her body. Grim. Boleyn's ghost has been sighted at the tower, carrying her head. They did say she lost her mind. Arf. This is said to be around the spot of her execution. More on Anne Boleyn coming soon to a podcast near you. Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, who was George, Duke of Clarence's daughter, was also executed at the Tower. Now, this one seems rather political, and there is a lot of unravelling to be done with regards to titles, sons and religion. Margaret was held in the Tower for two and a half years, but she did at least receive a clothing budget before being executed in 1541. This poem was found carved on the wall of her cell. For traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor, no, not I. My faithfulness stands fast, and so, towards the block I shall not go, nor make one step as you shall see. Christ, in thy mercy, save thou me. After much time in reasonable comfort at the tower, the announcement of her execution was a big surprise to her, so much so that the usual guy was off in the north cutting off heads there, So Margaret's execution was done by some kind of work experience person. The actual quote being, A wretched and blundering youth who literally hacked her head and shoulders to pieces in the most pitiful manner. According to accounts, she turned her head every which way, instructing the executioner to take her head if he could. She has continued this practice into the afterlife, as piercing screams are heard and attributed to Margaret, whose ghost is chased about the place by the executioner. In 1542, a two-for-one bargain, 
as Jane Boleyn and Catherine Howard were both executed at the Tower. Catherine being the fifth wife of our pal Henry Nonsuch Wedmore. She, according to TV, was the saucy one, and ironically didn't last long with Henry for that very reason. Although how much truth there is in that remains to be seen. She married Henry on the 28th of July, 1540. Yep, the day Cromwell was executed. I promised blood, didn't I? On the 13th of February, Catherine was executed. The night before, she asked for the block to be brought to herself so that she might practice. That's commitment. I assume she was the Kim Kardashian of her day. Sorry, David. Uh, Beau Brummel. Jane Boleyn, a Boleyn by marriage, had been kicking around court for some time, and in fact had appeared, masked of course, in the famous Chateau Vert dance performance with Mary and Anne Boleyn, her later sisters-in-law. She was not viewed kindly by many due to her potential role in the judgment of her husband George Boleyn and his sister, the little-known Anne. She remained a large part of court life, better known as Lady Rochford, and was executed with Catherine Howard. If you're shocked and think these executions might be unnecessary, even senseless, let me present Lady Jane Grey. In 1554, Jane, or the Nine Days Queen, was executed at the tender age of 17, maybe even 16. Jane was the great-granddaughter of Henry VII. The young Edward VI wrote in his will that Jane should take the throne. Due to a shared religion, he knew would not be followed if Mary took the throne. Jane was proclaimed queen upon Edward's death and awaited coronation in the tower. Jane's supporters and the Privy Council quickly changed their mind, however, and proclaimed Mary Queen instead. Okay, well, can't blame a girl for following the King's dying wish. Sorry, Jane, turns out you can. Uh, Jane almost got off until her father became part of a rebellion, which really sealed Jane's fate. Jane was viewed as a Protestant martyr, I would imagine relatively secretly, and so naturally she stuck around to haunt the tower. The most famous sighting of her was in 1957 by a couple of guards that confirmed they both saw her. Other than that, she's been spotted frequently around the anniversary of her death. Other than three Blackwatch guards that were executed within the tower grounds for mutiny in 1743, there is just one left to cover that was officially executed on the tower green. Robert Devereux, who was at one point a favourite of Elizabeth, he was sent to win the war in Ireland, and was as useful as a chocolate teapot. He returned not even with his tail betwixt his legs, but marched straight into the bedchamber of the Queen. This kind of boldness and stupidity continued, and eventually, after a small rebellion, he was charged with conspiring and imagining at London to depose and slay the Queen and to subvert the government. Well, if ever there had been an off-with-his-head situation, this was it. He was the last person to be beheaded at the Tower. Now for something not completely different. A list of prisoners at the Tower worth a mensch. We've already mentioned Wallace, John II of France and the princes in the Tower. And in fact the Tower was pretty busy during the Wars of the Roses, with all sorts of kings, heirs and other scum. <coughs> the longest held prisoner was William de la Pole, another relative of the Crown, held for 37 years. 
St Thomas More was held here before and after his execution, as it is his resting place. Thomas Cromwell we've mentioned, and Thomas Cranmer was held here too. It wasn't all bad though, in 1630 the Earl of Castlehaven was a prisoner at the Tower, but it didn't stop him getting all sorts of lovely gifts including a bed of crimson taffeta, twelve tapestries and three Turkish carpets. I would imagine that when Elizabeth I, you may have heard of her, was imprisoned at the Tower, it wasn't too physically uncomfortable. But watching and hearing executions and the general history and myth of the Tower was pretty daunting. Moving into the 1600s, Sir Walter Riley was at the Crown's pleasure for 13 years, even moved his wife and two kids in. Samuel Pepys, of fame for his attention to detail and excellent administrative skills, was held at the Tower in 1679 for maladministration. Surely not! I would have believed disservices to cheese. Note, he buried his parmesan through fear of losing it in the Great Fire. In the next century, Sir Robert Walpole, a subsequent Prime Minister, was held on charges of corruption. A politician? Corruption? The last to be held were the Cray Twins in 1952. The Cray Twins, the foremost gangsters in London and probably the UK, were held not for murder or liberally distributing crates of pineapples rough-end first, but for failing to turn up for national service. I've mentioned but few of the prisoners, so perhaps we can start a thread on the History of England Facebook page to discuss the others. I've really not been looking forward to this next section because of all the groans. No, it's not the annual Crowther Cracker Joke Bonanza. It's the section on torture, although some have drawn parallels. Anne Askew is one of the cases, in fact the only female one, that records official torture. Anne was a writer and poet, but it was her Protestantism that was the issue. For Anne, it was the dreaded rack that was used. The rack was a large frame with a winch at either end, with ropes to attach to humans' arms and legs, designed to create basketball players, except that basketball had another 350 or so years to wait before being invented. So all they ended up doing was causing great, great pain. The one at the tower was called the Duke of Exeter's daughter, after John Holland, Duke of Exeter, who was constable at the tower. Anne described the event herself, saying that she fainted and was revived for two more goes. Well, Anne didn't spill the beans, and the constable left with a flea in his ear, refusing to torture her more. They wouldn't let any Tom, Dick or Harry do this, although they did then let Tom Ridesley and Dick Rich get involved, who stretched her so hard that her shoulders and hips were wrenched from their sockets, had her elbows and knees dislocated. She still gave no names of her co-conspirators. I'd like to say at this point that Anne Askew is one of my heroes. She is the only woman on record of having been tortured at the Tower, and she didn't give in. She's one of the earliest female poets to compose in English, the language of the people, and she's the first Englishwoman to demand a divorce. You go, girl! I have the utmost respect and admiration for people that stand up to inequality. About 50 years later, some other people wanted to stand up to the authorities. They decided that rather than intelligence, wit and well-composed writing, 
they just blow stuff up. But when, acting on an anonymous tip-off, authorities searched underneath the Palace of Westminster, they found Mr Fawkes guarding barrels and barrels of gunpowder. Gunpowder? What gunpowder? These barrels are filled with, um, lemon curry. Lemon curry? All I'm saying is there is a sitcom there, if anyone is interested. Not enough historical sitcoms, actually. Well... I guess they didn't like Curry, as they took Guy to the tower to be questioned. Guy held out for a few days, but eventually things became too much and he sang like a nightingale. He was sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered, but apparently, on the way to the noose, he fell off the scaffold and broke his neck. The alleged last use of the rack was in 1640. It had been around for long enough. It had a good stretch. Um pull the other one. Okay, I'm done with the Guy Fawkes sitcom idea. Aside from these jokes, other instruments of torture were the manacles for people who just hung around too much and the wonderfully named Scavenger's Daughter, which was invented by Sir Leonard Skevington who was a lieutenant at the tower. It was the opposite of the rack in that it was a frame that certain parts were attached to so as to compress the body and simulate the pain and horror of travelling in London's rush hour. Some words were carved into the wall of the Beecham Tower by a prisoner that may have been the result of a meeting with the scavenger's daughter. By torture strange my truth was tried, yet of liberty denied. 1581 Thomas Meir. There was more torture and I'm sure even more than was officially sanctioned. There is plenty of graffiti scratched into the walls of the towers. But that's enough torture for me, I'm sure is what they all said. To the menagerie! Come on, let's go all the way back to Billy the Conk. Well, almost, because his son Henry apparently had a lion in Oxfordshire. Lions were first at the tower from as early as 1210, brought there by John. I make use of this in my book, To Murder a King, which is set at the tower. Did I mention that? Although I have the lions brought in from 1199, bit of a liberty, but it allowed me to talk about animals at the tower and also heraldry by way of lions on shields. I think you should check it out. Aptly, starting with lions then, a polar bear and elephants, there is a long list of animals that lived at the tower from 1210 until 1835, when they moved to Regent's Park and created London Zoo. Some were gifts, and some were acquired by successive monarchs, or perhaps took the district line by accident at Victoria, when all they learned to read a tube map. In 1235, Henry III was gifted some leopards by the Holy Roman Emperor, who I guess had them lying around. In 1251, the sheriffs of London had to pay maintenance, a muzzle and an iron chain for a white bear from Norway, so that it could fish in the Thames so I guess you could add fish to the list too. Naturally, many of the beasts had names. In 1603, a lioness called Elizabeth died during Queen Elizabeth I's illness. It was seen as an omen that the Queen would also die. Big news, people, big news. On 11th of January, 1660, Samuel Pepys recorded in his diary, going to visit a lion called Crowley, a very great lion and very tame, 
so now we know what nickname David Crowley Crowther shall henceforth be known by. There was an owl called Hopkins, and of course ravens have been a feature too, as they still are now. Charles II insisted the ravens be protected. The legend is that if the number of ravens falls below six, the tower will fall. Raven George was dismissed for eating television aerials, and Raven Grog was last seen outside an East End pub. In the first true guidebook to the tower, published in 1741, some of the animals listed include the lions Marco and Phyllis and their son Nero, plus two lionesses called Jenny and Nanny. Well, you still wouldn't mess. In the 1800 guide to the tower, the animals included a fine lioness called Fanny, a very fierce one called Miss Fanny, and two more called Miss Fanny Howe and Miss Howe, as they were born on the 1st of June 1794, the day of Admiral Howe's great victory over the French. But why was Martin so grizzly? he asks knowingly. Because he was a grizzly bear. Okay, so here goes with a list of some of the wonderful creatures that resided at one point or another at the tower. One Barbary lioness, two tigers, three leopards, a jaguar, puma, ocelot, one caracal, two cheetahs, one striped hyena, one hyena god, three African bloodhounds, two Javanese civets, one grey ichnumon, one paradoxorus, one brown coati, two raccoons, one American black bear, one grizzly bear, old Martin, one Tibet bear, one Bornean bear, monkeys, one bonneted monkey, one pig-faced baboon, apologies sir, one baboon, two white-headed mongooses, mongoose surely, three kangaroos, one African porcupine, one Asiatic elephant, a zebra, two llamas, a Malaysian rooster deer, one albino Indian antelope, one African sheep, one great sea eagle, one golden eagle, one bearded griffin, a griffin vulture, a secretary bird, hmm? one Virginian horned owl, one deep blue macaw, a blue and yellow macaw, one yellow-crested cockatoo, two emus, one crowned crane, two pelicans from Hungary, one alligator, one Indian boa, two anacondas, and a hundred rattlesnakes varying length from four to six feet. Easy peasy squeeze the lemon. At one point, you could see the animals for free. If only you bought some kind of pet or child to feed them. Okay, no children, just checking if you're still awake. After several attacks on the public, they were moved to a safer location. A safer location than the tower? Is there such a place? Hmm, after all the torture, deaths, murders and executions? Okay, yes, probably. Talking of safe places, it seems natural to talk about the crown jewels. Ask an Englishman about the crown jewels, and he may tell you you're being an idiom. However, you may be referring to the crown jewels that are kept in the tower. Since the time the wardrobe was based in the tower, various jewels and items of coronation regalia have been kept there. It makes sense, as it was a residence and was also guarded. In 1649, however, the crown was sold and melted down. Can you imagine why it wasn't required for the head of state? Specifically because the head was rolling down Whitehall. Not to worry, in 1661, after another Charles, a different Charles, had come back to take the throne again, they made a new crown, the St Edward's crown, which is still used today for the moment of coronation. You may have seen the Queen's car driving around London with a bumper sticker that says, My other crown's the Imperial State crown. 
as she has two. The other crown is used for the state opening of Parliament every year. The Queen has it for a few days before events to practice and get used to the weight, as it's quite heavy. Some of the world's most exquisite diamonds are among the jewels, the biggest being Kulinan 1 and Kulinan 2, the largest top-quality cut diamonds in the world, and of course the Kohinoor diamond from India, presented to Queen Victoria in 1850, when she said, Oh, isn't it lovely? But in 1671, the mysterious Colonel Blood, disguised as a parsnip, I mean parson, and three others attacked the housekeeper and stole the orb, crown and scepter. Blood originally visited the tower with his wife, who had a bad stomachache, presumably from a dodgy parsnip. Blood returned to thank the Edwards family, who looked after the jewels, and sparked up a family friendship. He went so far as to set up his alleged nephew with the Edwards' daughter, and on the date turned up with a couple of others and asked if, oh, just out of curiosity, whilst the young'uns are getting to know one another, may we take another peek at those lovely jewels? Blood overpowered Talbot Edwards, and they stormed into the jewel room, squashed the crown into a bag, tried to saw the scepter in half, and stuffed the orb down Blood's breeches. Is that a orb in your breeches? Luckily... Edwards regained consciousness and shouted, Murder! Treason! At this point, they tried to flee, but were arrested at the gate. When questioned, Blood insisted that he would talk to none but the king himself. Well, believe it or not, this worked. King Charles, the king, not a spaniel, was amused by Blood's audacity when he said the jewels were not worth the £100,000 they were valued at. Blood was pardoned by the king and even given lands with an income. Those present presumably said, "Uh, What exactly just happened? And thus Blood earned his reputation as a lovable rogue. So how shall we measure the overall amazingness of the tower? Well, in 1191 it was surrendered to Prince John, and in 1263 his son Henry surrendered it to Simon de Montfort. We know in 1381 a band of revolting peasants got in. A few prisoners escaped, and Blood made a pretty good attempt at theft, and of course was rewarded for it. Not a great track record. But as a place of myth, legend, torture, ghosts, schemes, murder most foul, murder not so foul, and, well, generally murder, I suggest it is one of the best castles in England, nay, the world. They do charge a fair bit for you to get in, but it's worth it. If you can't stretch to the entry fee, tube ticket, bus ride, ferry cost, and flight across whichever sea or ocean you'd need to travel across, here's how you can get in for free. Allow your mind to wander into the castle by reading a book that is set at the tower. You know what? I'll even recommend a couple. So in case somehow you didn't realise or you dozed off around the Tudors murderising everyone, I wrote a book set there. I want kids to get into history, real history, so I wrote a story that could have feasibly happened and is action-packed to keep the pages turning. If you have a kid, grandkid, are a kid, or even just act like one, then check out my book. You can read the first chapter or so without having to buy it. The e-book's really cheap, and even a portion of the proceeds go to charities that are close to my heart. It's called To Murder a King, and is the first in the Squire's Tale series. 
It features a few big historical names like King John and my idol William Marshall, among many others. You can either search Amazon, Kindle Store, Google, scream at your computer, or follow the link on Facebook or the History of England website. I have also written a cut-down version of this research and put it on a blog, specifically designed for young people that would like to know more or are going to visit the tower. Please share this link with any young people that you think might be interested or could benefit from learning a bit more about our fantastic history. Before I go, just a quick thank you to those that have helped with the research. Liz St John, author of another Histfic book, The Lady of the Tower. Edward Impey and Geoffrey Parnell of the Illustrated Guide to the Tower, and of course, thanks to Crowley for letting me witter on. I'm off to have some lemon curry. Stop that, it's too silly. No one likes a good laugh more than I do, except for perhaps my wife and some of her friends. Oh, and Captain Johnson, come to think of it. Quite a few people like a good laugh more than I do. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.